Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here with Adrian Miller. He is the author of the James Beard award-winning Soul Food and also the President's Kitchen Cabinet. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. So I was really um, interested to hear a lot about the food that is made in the White House, really because I consider the White House a part of the South. And since the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is in the South, that's one of the things that we we talk about. I know that you you have some political background and you're a recovering attorney, as I am. Uh But what got you interested in White House cooking and the people who cooked in the White House? So the short answer is unemployment. So (laughs) I was working in the Clinton uh, White House and um, I, at that time, the, I was trying to get back to Colorado to start my political career, but the job market was really slow. And um, I actually uh, started just, uh, went to a bookstore, was looking through a book on the history of Southern food and written by John Edgerton, um, Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. And in that book, he said the tribute to black cooks had yet to be written. And so I just started researching because uh, I was interested. I was like, okay, well, maybe I could do that. And um, eventually I found out stories of these African-Americans who had cooked for our presidents. Mm-hmm. Now, I was working on my soul food book, so I didn't really pay a lot of attention to that. But then after I finished the soul food book, I said, you know what? I have two or three stories, enough for an article but not a book. Let me just see what I can find. And I found 150 African-Americans who have been in the presidential kitchen since Washington. That's quite a few. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about James Hemming. So the story that you told really didn't give the sort of sort of scandal that I've heard about James Hemming and Thomas Jefferson not wanting to give his freedom and all of that sort of thing. Is that a true story or is that just apocryphal? I think that's apocryphal because everything that I read shows that once Hemings approached him about freeing him, they just worked out a deal. And so I I just really didn't see a lot of resistance from Jefferson. And actually that surprised me because I expected to see resistance but all along, we see like uh, we always see Jefferson kind of making concessions to Hemings. Mm-hmm. So when he was in France, there was something that would have allowed Hemings to be freed if a third party had sued for his freedom. And we have evidence that Jefferson paid him a wage similar to what other chefs would have gotten in a private residence at that time. So who knows what deal was struck there? Right, but we right. just kind of see that happening throughout their relationship. Okay. Because I, I have read an actual book about the apocryphal, perhaps apocryphal story, um, which really makes it sound as though every, every, at every turn, Jefferson really blocks um, Hemings' attempts to become free and then finally has to do it because it's going to be a, sort of a, an ugly story that's going to come out. Oh, so, like uh, what was going on with Sally, maybe? No, no, oh. no. It would just be that that they had a written contract that said he would be freed and then Jefferson was not going to do it. And so the fact that he was reneging on a contract was going to be an ugly story that was going to... All right, well, you're showing me something, so I'm going to have to look into that because that's interesting because that would add some depth to my uh, my story because I had not found that in my research. So have you talked to Ashbell? Yes. And has he talked to you about this story? He's never brought that up to me. Okay, Um, so uh, there's actually a book, and I can't remember the author, 
but it's an entire book written about this. Okay. And um, it would be worth looking at, even if all you do is debunk it. Yeah. Um, because it, I'm, that the story is is definitely out there. I am intrigued. <laughs> Thank you. I, I just hadn't heard that. Really, this is the first time I've heard that. Okay. I will find the name of the book and I'll send it to you. Okay. Is it possibly Annette Gordon-Reed? Could it have been part of her? No, no. No, okay. No. So um, what, tell me about your new project and uh, what's going on with barbecue. Yeah, so my new project is called Black Smoke, uh, History of African-American Barbecue Culture. And the reason I'm writing that is that I'm just tired of white dudes getting all the credit mm-hmm. in barbecue. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really triggered by a couple of things. One was in 2004, I was watching a Food Network special, Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue hour-long tour of the South. By the time the credits rolled, she had not spoken to one African-American on air. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, well, first of all, how's this happen? And then I thought, well, maybe I misheard the promo. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue. <laughs> so I just said, okay, well, and then I just started paying more close attention to it because before my deepest thinking about barbecue was, oh, that tastes good. Uh-huh. So I started noticing food media about barbecue. And again, it was not only was it um, a celebration of two kinds of white dudes. Pretty much the, the hipsters, interesting facial hair, tattoos, yeah, glasses, right, right. Uh, and Bubba's, you know, yeah. kind of rural guys. Yeah. But it would, even within that context, it was the same white dudes over and over. Uh-huh. So I was just like, okay, well, what, how did this happen? And so it's really looking back at what was barbecue a few hundred years ago? How has it changed? Because I'd always associated it with African-Americans, at mm-hmm. least the cooking of it. Mm-hmm. And like, how did that happen? And how do we get off track from that? I'm sorry. No, no. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But to me, barbecue represents sort of the same thing to me that the kitchen does. So in the kitchen, women are working together and they're passing down stories and they're um, teaching the next generation and everything about life and everything happens. And to me, that's what barbecue is for men. Mm -hmm. It's like you spend the night together, sitting around, tending the fire, and tell Mm -hmm. stories Mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, interestingly, for a lot of people, barbecue is no longer that. Because of mechanization and other things, it's a matter of just seasoning your meat and then uh, setting up a a cooker and pushing Mm -hmm. a button, right? Yeah. So we're missing that part of it, and, and a lot of, in the commercial barbecue sense. Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah, it's interesting times. And barbecue is hugely popular. So my main thing is, uh, and I'm not trying to say white people can't cook barbecue. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm just saying if we're going to celebrate barbecue culture, we have to include African Americans. Oh, it's just goofy not to. Yes. And I want African Americans to sh- uh, share in the newfound prosperity of barbecue. I mean, I was just reading some barbecue restaurant or chain is going to have an IPO of $270 million or something like that. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 So. Well, and also, it seems so different now because so many people are barbecuing not the whole animal, but just the parts. And so it, it totally changes the use of the animal and all of that. Exactly. And I, I think uh, part of that was purposeful because when you look at the 1890s, you see that essentially African-American men are dominating barbecue. Mm-hmm. And it's whole animal cooking, and it was a number, a wide variety of animals. It wasn't just pigs. Mm-hmm. And um, once you see the emergence of kind of this smaller cuts of meat, that's when you start to see more and more white men doing barbecue. So I think in a way it was redefined away from African-American expertise. 
And so um, you have like a 20-year period where white men kind of dominate restaurant barbecue, but then African-American entrepreneurs catch up. Yes. And there's like a 50-year period I call the golden age of black barbecue. Mm-hmm. But then in the 90s, it starts to change. And again, barbecue gets redefined from African-American expertise in that the key thing that happens is that barbecue gets called a craft. So before, it was just some menial thing that had delicious results. And it was a lot of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now it's a craft. So now people that would do architecture, accounting, they're now doing barbecue. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing uh, happens. So I, I think it's an interesting juxtaposition of those redefinitions of kind of barbecue. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Do you know um, Howard Conyers? Yes. So Howard is one of our fellows at the museum. And so he has taught me so much about barbecue because he is really, really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, he's interesting. So um, he's one of the few people bringing out whole animal cooking in addition to Rodney Scott. And I just think it's fascinating what they're doing. And so I'm really intrigued as to where they think barbecue is going to go. And I, j- I just wonder, outside of the South, what are the prospects for whole, whole hog cooking? Because I think a lot of people have an attitude about uh, Carolina barbecue because uh-huh. they're, you know, cause they've gotten so much bad yes. uh, representations of right. it. And so I'm really hopeful that they'll, they'll be able to, you know, part, chart a path forward doing this whole animal cooking. Yeah, that's, uh, that would be great because I, I, I know that when we have cooked a whole pig in the backyard of the museum, uh, really? Then, yes, we have a pig pit back there <laughs> and all kinds. And we have one that, you know, is, is fire-driven, and then we have some that are pellet-driven and other things, but one that's just really logs and just a traditional pig pit smoker, and the kind that mimics the way it would be if you put it in the ground, but it's not in the ground so that it's a little bit less back-breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever we have the head left over... We put out something on social media. If a chef wants the head, they can. I mean, we get twenty people that come over and say, you know, I'm going to get there first, you know, because I want the head. Oh, nice! That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's a great it's a great thing, and of course, in Louisiana, because we have so much problem um, with feral pigs, uh, the the Department of Agriculture has instituted a program where you can get your pig inspected. So if you get a wild animal, you can inspect it, and then they can be sold because, you know, you can't sell wild animals. And, but you can sell these after they've been inspected, and it's encouraged people to make then wild boar sausage that can be sold and bought at a grocery store, and you can serve wild boar on your menu and things like that. So I think that... To be able to then know what to do with a whole animal is just a really important thing. Yeah. yeah. And in many ways, it may be a, a real sustainable way to look at barbecue, right? Yes. The whole animal cooking. Yes. Because so, yes. I think there's a lot of waste uh, when we focus on individual parts. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And then you just develop a taste for this part or that part. You don't even taste. You don't have the opportunity to taste the rest of the animal. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Ed Mitchell, uh, who, another famous whole hog cooker, yes. uh, he, I interviewed him, and he's really given me a depth of knowledge about kind of different taste profiles and 
the, you know the how complicated it is to cook a whole animal because you've got parts cooking at different, different yeah degree. I mean, yeah. the thickness and mm-hmm. some is faster than others. Yeah. Yeah. So you get a real appreciation for the artistry, and you realize why people redefined away from whole animal because yes. it was complex, right? Right. It's just and, so much easier and, to and cook it up. takes longer. Yeah. 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 So you see why that happens. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It does make sense. So when do you, yeah, have you finished the manuscript? I have. So my editor, Elaine Maisner at Uni- University of North Carolina Press, has it in her hands. Okay. She's, she's told me she likes, she really liked it. So it's in the process because it's an academic press. It's got, now got to be read by two independent readers and then some other folks. And then, so we're looking at a spring of 2021 uh, publishing date. Wow. Okay. Well, that's actually not as long as you yeah. think it is. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels long to me because I really want to share these stories. I've got so many incredible stories. I'll just give you one glimpse. I have the story of an enslaved woman in 1840s Arkansas who was in charge of barbecues. So she was telling men what to do, 1840s, and she made enough money to buy her freedom. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So I have stories like that. Wow. That I'm, I just want to share. That's fabulous. And yeah. do you have recipes too? I do. So are the recipes for mostly like rubs and sauces or do you have other recipes? I have a nice spread. So it's going to be for rubs, sauces, as well as composed dishes. And then, you know, ribs. I have a rib. I have a brisket one. I have a shrimp one. Uh I have an alligator one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you do oysters? I do not do oysters. Okay. Um, Smoked mullet and some other things. So I I try to get a nice representation of kind of barbecue. I like smoked mullet. Yeah. I don't get it very often, especially being in Colorado. Yeah. 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 Isn't there a, a smoked mullet contest in Florida? Oh, I don't know about Florida. Okay, I didn't know about that. They 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 eat it in Florida. Yeah. And they they put um, smokers that the, the more modern smokers are made out of oil cans. The old ones, I think, were wooden, but this, they they make them out of oil cans now and just do them right on the beach and smoke them. Oh man, I got to find out more about that because I would go to that. Yeah, I would check. I would definitely check that out. Yeah, I definitely think it's a contest. That I mean, obviously they do it. Besides that, but mm-hmm. there is definitely a contest every year, mm-hmm. and uh, it's um, it's fun. Okay, yeah, yeah cool. we ha- we have a smoker in the uh, in the museum. Man, what what don't you have? <laughs> oh, I know we are we're really you are uh, the best in... on the whole program. We appreciate. It. I appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> We have really, really wonderful smoke smokers and things like that all through because we decided that rather than do a barbecue exhibit, which would just be nuts and hard to do because you'd leave something out no matter what you did, mm-hmm. um, and we're designed by state, we decided we would simply include barbecue in each state and it would show how, for example, it's different in Texas than it is someplace else because the geography allows for cattle to roam. So mm-hmm. you have cattle as mm-hmm. your primary meat. Mm-hmm. Other places you have mutton. Other places you have pig. You have chicken. And then you get to talk about the, whether it's rubbed or you know how it's smoked. And then you can talk about grilled oysters you can talk about smoked mullet and all of that kind of stuff too mm-hmm. so that's really how we that's how we decided to spread it out and then we could go state by state so we have for example ed gibson's one of his little smokers in the museum and he came and he delivered it and he had a 
life-size, actually larger than life-size cutout of himself made, which we also have in the museum. I love that. I need to do that. I definitely need to do that. <laughs> That's great. I'm not going to Gibson, Ed Mitchell. And, um, and we have Gibson's Barbecue in, um, in Alabama. So they gave us their very first screen door <laughs> that they had and their old, old, old counter and stuff where they used to chop up everything. Nice. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun kind of combination of modern stuff and old stuff. Okay, yeah. cool. I love that. Yeah, Ed, Ed Mitchell, and I, I, by the way, I knew who you meant. Yeah. Um, but... Ed, yeah. Ed Mitchell is uh, interesting because he, uh, he's definitely got that old school vibe, but his son is really engaged. And his son is really thinking about how can we take this legacy and move it into the future. And so they're opening a 